I've always been fascinated by untranslatable words. Those words where one language isn't quite able to capture the essence of a word's meaning. Sundoku, for instance, is a Japanese word which loosely translates to leaving a book unread after buying it until you have piles of unread books. But there's a distinct feeling and cultural emotion behind the word sundoku that can't quite be translated into American English. Like a tea bag, you would have to seep and soak yourself thoroughly in Japanese culture to get a real sense of the word. The West African word griot is one of those words. If you look at Webster's Dictionary, they define a griot as a traveling storyteller or musician who maintains a tradition of oral history. It makes it sound so simple and unimportant. It doesn't capture the feeling and cultural emotion of the word. Webster's does not capture its essence and its true meaning today. We are going to be like tea bags, seeping and soaking ourselves in West African history through the epic story of Sunjata, the founder of the Mali Empire. But to understand this masterpiece of oral storytelling, we have to understand what a griot is. The griot is inseparable from this story. Without a book to relate the story, the griot is the book. Sunjata had a griot who remembered his deeds and passed it down to another griot who passed it down to griots who passed it down for some 765 years. This story takes place in the mid 13th century or what we might consider medieval times or the Middle Ages. The word griot is a prime example of the colonization of language. It's been made European in the native West African tongue. The word jelly is more accurate. Jele, literally meaning blood. This should let you know how important these people were in West African society. They are masters of the word, keepers of tradition, just as blood is crucial to the survival of the body. Griots are crucial to the survival of history and tradition in the pre-colonial era. Griots were walking encyclopedias, hyper-serious historians, advisors to kings, mediators in national and international disputes, ambassadors, diplomats, archivists, genealogists, masterful musicians, and so much more. You can see why this word is untranslatable. As a historical storyteller myself, I could only hope to aspire to this level of prestige in the craft of oral storytelling to have the poetic and rhythmic and dramatic cadence to my stories. To be a living, breathing heartbeat and primary source of history. So it is only through the griot or the jelly that I'm able to relate this tale of Sunjata Kaita. The griot Mamadou Koyat, who hails from the same Mande culture of Mali as Sunjata, is the one who told this story, which was transcribed to historian D.T. Niani in 1960. And if I mispronounce any of the names here, I apologize, but know that my intent is crystal clear, and that is always to tell the stories of the historically unheard. I wish I could have been there to hear Kuyat 
tell this story and breathe new life back into this ancient story to see the soul and art of the griot celebrating Africa's finest, most subtle and sublime music and stories. But Jele Mamadou Koyat starts the epic of Sunjata this way when he says, quote, I am a griot. It is I, Jele Mamadou Koyat, son of Bintu Koyat. We are the vessels of speech. We are the repositories which harbor secrets for us. Without us, the names of kings would vanish into oblivion. We are the memory of mankind. By the spoken word, we bring to life the deeds and exploits of kings for younger generations. I teach kings the history of their ancestors so that the lives of the ancients might serve them as an example. For the world is old, but the future springs from the past. My word is pure and free of all untruth. It is the word of my father. It is the word of my father's father. I will give you my father's word just as I receive them. Royal griots do not know what lying is. Listen to my words, you who want to know. By my mouth, you will learn the history of Mali. Listen then, sons of Mali, children of the black people, listen to my word, for I am going to tell you of Sunjata, the father of the bright country, of the savannah land, and the ancestor of those who draw the bow, the master of a hundred vanquished kings. I am going to tell you of Sunjata, lion of Mali, he whose exploits will astonish men for a long time yet. He was great among kings, he was peerless among men, he was beloved of God because he was the last of the great conquerors. Everyone, welcome to the Humanity Archive podcast. I am your gracious host, Jermaine Fowler. And today, I have a fascinating story for you, one that you may have never heard before, but even if you have, you've never heard it in the way that I'm going to tell it. This is a story of fate and destiny. It's a story of heroism. It's a story of family and of magic, a story of exile and return. This is a story of West Africa, a story of Mali, a story of Sunjata, the Lion King, an epic of the Mali Empire. Now let's get into it. Hey everyone, if you're loving what you're hearing and you're passionate about diving deep into history, consider becoming a supporter of the Humanity Archive. And you can do that by going over to patreon.com backslash the Humanity Archive. Why should you? Well, where else are you going to find history that's not just a sequence of dates and battles, but a rich tapestry of real people, real lives and real struggles? Your support doesn't just keep the lights on and empowers me to bring you stories that aren't making it onto mainstream platforms. You're making a difference by helping me share these vital narratives. And you can do that starting at as little as two dollars a month. Well, you can't even get a cup of coffee for two dollars these days, but 
Yeah, simply go over to patreon.com backslash the humanity archive after pausing this episode, then come back and enjoy the rest of the show. Again, that's patreon.com backslash the humanity archive. Thank you for making history matter. Now, when I was researching this West African epic of Sunjata, I had a thought that looking back at global history is like trying to look through a foggy window. You know, things are clear on the other side. Yet you can never quite see past the hazy gloom of European colonialism. Trust me, I would like nothing more than to tell the story of Sunjiado without any mention of European influence, but one cannot escape the influence on the history itself. The influence being that so much of this oral story was surely lost in the translation to English and the analysis of the epic in the European perspective. History, my friends, has a funny way of being written by the conquerors, doesn't it? They don't just seize your land, they seize your narrative. And the ugly fact is, and the unfairness of all this is, that if someone colonizes, conquers, and enslaves you, they can bear your history. Now, people with history have an identity. No history, no identity. It's like erasing fingerprints and hiding the evidence. So the story didn't really resurface until the 1960s, and even then it isn't as mainstream in America as, say, the English epic of Beowulf. I watched that movie in social studies class in grade school or the ancient Greek poem, The Odyssey. We read Dante's Inferno. We read Moby Dick. So these histories that come in the form of epic poems are largely Western or American. We don't really see the African epics in world literature classes. For this reason and many more, the people on the continent of Africa often don't exist in the consciousness of many in the Western world because we don't know their stories. Patricia C. McKissack, who was a prolific writer and gave us so much black history, mirrors this sentiment when she says, quote, for well over a thousand years from 8500 to 1700, the civilizations of Western Africa flourished. Most of us know nothing about them. During the same period, Europe suffered from constant warfare and only slowly recovered its lost glory. The history of the Dark Ages and the Renaissance is taught in every school. Most of Africa's history, except for that of Egypt, remains unknown to general readers. But there were great kingdoms in the western Sudan waiting to be discovered. Once knowledge of these old empires resurfaced, some claim that Jews, who had rebelled against the Romans in Libya, had migrated to the Western Sudan around A.D. 115 and built these civilizations. Another group pushed the theory that Sudanese achievements were the results of Arab invasions and the coming of Islam. Some even suggested that African accomplishments were the result of visitors from outer space. Any wild idea was more acceptable than to admit that Africans had the intellect and ingenuity to develop and control well-ordered empires. The purpose of all these erroneous theories was simply to justify slavery and attitudes of racial superiority. Imagine if you flip through the book of history and whole chapters were just ripped out. That's not just a flawed book. That's a flawed education. We're not just ignoring history. We're ignoring a part of our global human heritage because in that erasure, we lose more than stories. We lose perspectives, wisdoms and lives and narratives. So there are all these misconceptions and stereotypes about African civilization I feel compelled to shatter. The history of Africa is long. It goes back to the birth of civilization. Yet even though Egypt is called the flower of antiquity, many refuse to believe 
The ancient Egyptians were Africans. There were empires everywhere in Kush, the Zulu, Aksum, and Ethiopia, and Nubia. Then there is the West African tradition of Ghana and Mali and the Songhai. So we are going to zoom in on the Mali Empire, the military power, the central government, the politics, all of it. The people who ruled the Mali Empire, also called the Mandinka or Mandingo people, were a force to be reckoned with. They were skilled navigators of the mighty Niger River. They were agriculturalists and domesticating crops like millet and sorghum, African rice, peanuts, okra, and cola. There were blacksmiths making advances in the molding of iron into tools and weapons. They had a fully formed military with skilled horsemen forming an adept cavalry. They had tremendous wealth with gold being the most prized export. They were hunters with fantastic abilities in tracking and staying alive in the wilderness. They were monarchs, kings and queens with the fate of nations at their fingertips. There were also musicians and cooks and mothers and fishermen and teachers, artisans, architects and scholars. But let's not romanticize them excessively. There were conquerors and subjugators as well, men and women bound by the mores and prejudices of their time. They enslaved, they discriminated, and they fought wars of expansion. They were neither angels nor demons. They were us, complex beings struggling to align their aspirations with their actions, wrestling with the contradictions that make us human. They were an empire and civilization in all of its glory and its flaws. They were thoroughly and completely human. And when I think of Mali, I think of This impressive country bordered by the unforgiving Sahara Desert. So harsh, it's like a barren ocean of scorching brown sand. So vast, it boggles the mind. Contrast that with the architectural marvel that is the great Mosque at Jeneh. If you haven't seen it, look it up. These awe-inspiring bay structures stand like colossal sandcastles, dwarfing the people on the streets and capturing your imagination. And it is in this setting, in the 13th century, where our story begins. Now, the first thing we have to remember is that the story of Sunjata is an epic. By definition, an epic is a long poem, typically one derived from ancient oral tradition and narrating the deeds and adventures of heroic or legendary figures or the history of a nation. They often include some mythical, fantastical and unbelievable stuff. So it's this larger than life kind of tale. For instance, in the epic of Sunjata, there's a line that says when Sunjata was born, the sky darkened and great clouds hid the sun and thunder lit up the sky. Right. The drama is laid on thick. So there is this immaculate conception and this prophecy that says Sunjata will be this great ruler. What's really interesting is that the griot who is telling the story of Sunjata says you have to believe him for he is not capable of telling lies. We cite other books as sources in our writing. His sources are his ancestors. His credentials are a code of honor to tell the story as it has been told to him. And look at it like this, too. Even if this Sunjata story is mythology, we can go to the late Professor Joseph Campbell, for he makes an argument that even mythology is truth when he says, quote, mythology is not a lie. Mythology is poetry. It is metaphorical. It has been well said that mythology is the penultimate truth, penultimate because the ultimate cannot be put into words. It is beyond words, beyond images, beyond that bounding rim of the Buddhist will of becoming. Mythology pitches the mind beyond that rim to what can be known, but not told, unquote. Campbell believed myths hold the key to understanding human experience. 
They may vary superficially from culture to culture, but at their deepest level, they all reveal the path to self-fulfillment, social integration and ultimately transcendence. Now, the story of Sunjata starts with a retelling of the lineage of the Bambara kings or the Mande or the Mandingo kings. as They're often called in English. A lot of you have heard the term Mandingo warriors. Well, this is where it comes from. So Sunjata comes from this long line of hunter kings. His father and grandfathers were hunters and rulers. His father, Magan Kanfada, was Magan the Handsome. And the griot makes a point to say that Confada had three wives and six children. This is where you have to shift your thinking a bit because polygamy was a common and still is a common practice in West African society, perhaps just as common as monogamy is in America. And I think we have to take pause there because we have to look at that. According to anthropologists, only one in six societies enforce monogamy as a rule. And so we know Christianity condemns polygamy as an offense against the dignity of marriage, insisting that conjugal love between a man and wife must be undivided and exclusive. Agree or disagree, this is a way of life that cultural imperialism stamped out, forced out. So the critical question is whether it's right to force people to believe the way you believe, even if you believe what they are doing is wrong. Now, let you wrestle with that rhetorical question. So we're told that Sunjata's father, Magan Kanfado, was king of Mali with his seat in the capital city, which was called Niani. And one day, a soothsaying hunter foretells that he will produce a great ruler through his marriage of an unsightly and ugly woman. A word on soothsayers. Now, keep in mind, a lot of this story is grounded in the traditional or what has been called or deemed as an African belief system of magic. Now, again, we have to stop in the story. We have to shed our colonist European perspective, like a snake sheds its scaly withering skin. Those definitions that would consider this magic as unrefined superstitions, these wise men and women and soothsayers as fakes. And we go to African scholar John S. Mbiti because he fiercely argued that African religion deserved the same respect as any when he said, quote, there is a mystical order governing the universe. The belief in this order is shown clearly in the practice of traditional medicine, magic, witchcraft and sorcery. It is held in all African societies that there is power in the universe and that it comes from God. It is a mystical power and that it is hidden and mysterious. African religions, he said, were as deeply rooted and as legitimate as Christianity, Islam, Judaism and Buddhism. Unquote. Why is it so hard for us to respect traditional African Religion, even if we don't believe in it, the same way one might respect others they don't believe in. Religion is a tricky thing precisely because the beliefs are so strong. Yet there is something to be gained from a comparative religion study and traditional religions should not be left out of this study. So let's get back into the story and really dive into the epic. Later, two hunters bring a woman to offer as his wife and Magan Kanfada sees this as the foretold woman. Her name was Sogalan. The hunters earned her by defeating a monstrous buffalo that was terrorizing a land far away. And through showing kindness to an old woman, they were taught the secret of the buffalo and then given their choice of a woman by the king whose realm was being terrorized. The old woman told them to choose the ugliest maid, and they did. Now, it's unsettling to our modern ears to hear of women being won or given in this manner. I mean, it still happens in so many countries. 
It was a norm not just in ancient Mali, but across the world for much of human history. You think about these arranged marriages and patriarchal structures that often dominated familiar and societal norms. But let's fast forward. And so Sunjata's father has three wives. Sosuma, mother of King Dankaran Tuman, Sogalan, mother of Kolonkan and Jamaru and Sunjata, and Namanji was his third wife, and she was mother of Manding Bori, Sunjata's half-brother and best friend. This extended family is going to play an important part of this whole story. In childhood, Sunjata faces two obstacles. First, because of the prophecy, the king's first wife, Susuma Barite, spreads vicious rumors about him and his mother, Sogolan, in an effort to elevate her own son's stature. And second, Sunjata is crippled and does not walk until the age of seven. This intermarriage rivalry seems to be logically one of the challenges of polygamy. Imagine the angst that arises over competing for access to the same husband and the desire to have your son and not his half brother on the throne. We're unveiling the raw nerves of ambition and the all consuming fire of jealousy that can reduce a palace to ashes. You have this prophecy, which is a vision of the ideal. And then you have the resentment and chaos sown by those who feel that they are not sufficiently valued. So in this cosmic chess game, each move isn't just about the players. It's about the very fabric of society and how each action ripples through the community. In this particular story, it's going to cause some life threatening issues for Sunjata. Not only is the scorching jealousy there, but only one son can ascend to the throne. This is the stuff assassinations are made of, right? Jealousy and lust for power. In the epic of Sunjata, we see the anger brewing inside of Sasuma Barite, whose own son, Dankaran Tuman, she wanted on the throne. And we see this jealousy and rivalry in the story when the Jele tells us, quote, Sogolan, Sunjata's mother, now walked freely in the king's great enclosure, and people also got used to her ugliness. But the first wife of the king, Susuma Barite, turned out to be unbearable. She was restless and smarter to see the ugly Sogolan proudly flaunting her pregnancy about the palace. What will become of her, Susuma Barite, if her son, already eight years old, was disinherited in favor of the child that Sogolan was going to bring into the world? All the king's attention went to the mother-to-be. Soon, dark schemes took form in the mind of Susuma Barite. Unquote. So Sunjata is born and he starts to grow. And then there's this disability. Make no mistake, the same stigma of the disabled, the same prejudice of the disabled that happens in current societies happen there too. the townspeople questioned what three year old has not taken his first steps. Especially when prophesied to be a future king. On the contrary, Susuma's son, Dakaran Tuman, was 11 and he was already going through his initiation rites and becoming a fully formed young man. At seven, Sunjata still crawled about. One day, the king who was distraught because of the disabled successor, Sunjata, came along the house of a blacksmith and seer who said, quote, When the seed germinates, growth is not always easy. Great trees grow slowly, but they plunge their roots deep into the ground, unquote. This reinvigorated Magan Kanfada's confidence in the prophecy, so he bestows upon Sunjata his griot, Balafasike, the son of his own griot. All kings had griots, so this was the ultimate form of confidence. Even though a son could not walk, even though 
he barely spoke that belief that he would overcome and lead the Mali Empire. Sunjata and Bala were then inseparable friends. It is the griot who passed down the story of kings. Then the king, Magankan Fada, dies soon afterwards, and against his wishes, his eldest son, Dankaran Tuman, is given control by the elders who do not see much future in the crippled boy Sunjata. So this is where we really start to see the sibling rivalry between Sunjata and his brother and the uninterrupted hostility. It makes me wonder, are children capable of envy at this time in life? And I mean envy in all its intensity and distinctness. If I think back about the relationship between me and my two brothers and how we used to argue over the video game controller, I'd say yes. Here we have brothers who are battling for a literal throne. So Sasuma is now the queen mother. Sunjata was now spoken of with scorn and with hatred. And Susuma vanquished Sogolan and Sunjata and his siblings to a backyard of the royal palace, like dogs never allowed in the house. This was a public ridicule. Sunjata is a sideshow, persecuted, laughed at, stigmatized. Susuma even let the public come see him, unable to walk. And then one day when Sogolan was embarrassed by the queen mother, Sunjata uses a rod to help himself stand on two legs. And from this day onward, his strength was unmistakable. Imagine this as the cinematic turning point, the moment in an epic film when the music swells. Sunjata isn't just standing. He's challenging the very forces that sought to keep him down. Sunjata didn't just stand on two legs uneventfully in the story, by the way, he stood up and the ground shook and the rod he used to help himself up transformed into a bow. It was said that his first steps were those of giants. Sunjata's griot, Bala Vasike, fell into step and pointing his finger at Sunjata cried, Room, room, make room. The lion has walked. Hide, antelopes, get out of his way. The very universe responded to this young lion. He didn't just rise. He transcended the emergence of the individual from a state of dependency and facing his tribulations and adopting the responsibility of his own being. He not only gains his strength, but also establishes a new order. Jelly Mama do Koyat relays the story and says, quote, from that day forward, the queen mother had no more peace of mind. But what can one do against destiny? Nothing. Man, under the influence of certain illusions, thinks he can alter the course which God has mapped out. But everything he does falls into a higher order, which he barely understands. Unquote. So Sunjata has now went from the scorned and ridiculed child to the popular contender. His brother Manding Bori is by his side. He has a lot of the other princes whose fathers had sent them to the court at Neani, and they fell in around him. His griot, Bala Fasike, was instructing him. At a young age, he had already attained the title of Simbon. Simbon is often used in the context of West African oral traditions and refers to a master hunter with extraordinary skills and wisdom and supernatural abilities. It is said that he had the strength of 10 men at the age of 10, frightened for her own son to lose his control. The queen mother, Sasama Barite, tries to kill Sunjata. So she consults some witches to assist, and they would only assist if a wrong was done to them. So a scheme was put in place for the witches to steal some vegetables from Sogolan's garden, which Sunjata watched over and protected. He catches them stealing and shows empathy for the hungry poor women, and they can do him no harm. So Sasama exiles Sunjata, Sogolan, and their immediate family. To make matters worse, Balafasike is taken as prisoner after he was sent as part of a delegation to the powerful king in a land called Soso, named after Samoro Kante. 
Sunjata has lost his griot. So he's in exile. For seven years, they travel from asylum to asylum, sometimes being shown great hospitality and occasionally being mistreated by their hosts. Seven winters passed. Now, consider the archetypal journey Sunjata is embarking on. Seven years of exile, a time-honored symbol of trial and transformation. He's facing the unknown, and in doing so, he's sorting himself out. As Sunjata passes through the towns and cities of Mali, he is making allies. Remember, he was a natural leader, gaining love and respect. So the family finally finds Silas in Ghana, specifically in the fabled land of Wagadu, which was under the dominion of the Soninke people. Let's take a moment to appreciate the historical grandeur of Wagadu. This is no ordinary place. This is the heartland of the ancient Ghana Empire, a beacon of commerce and civilization. Picture bustling markets filled with the cacophony of languages, vibrant textiles and exotic goods from all across the Sahara. Tethered camels line the trading posts, standing as living emblems of the trans-Saharan trade that made this empire wealthy. Sogolan, ever the astute matriarch, petitions for asylum here. She doesn't pick this place out of thin air. No, she recognizes that Wagadu's spiritual Milu is more accommodating. The teachers of Islam have made deeper inroads here than they have back in the Ani. This is the place where a family can reestablish itself without the looming specter of their past haunting them. Now, let's not forget about Sunjata's transformative journey. Everywhere he goes, he leaves an indelible mark. People are captivated, not just by his royal lineage, but by the substance of his character, his natural leadership skills, his unwavering courage and his burgeoning wisdom. And then he finds a mentor in Musa Tankara while residing in Mima. And this is a wise and warrior, a master of military strategy who sees in Sunjata the raw material for greatness. And under Tankara's tutelage, Sunjata is not merely trained for the art of war, but he's also instilled with the ethics of leadership. Tankara is grooming him to be more than just a warrior. He's preparing Sunjata to be a wise and just ruler and heir worthy of the complexities and challenges of empire. The story goes like this, quote, it was at the court of Mima that Sunjata and Manding Bori went on their first campaign. Musa Tankara was a great warrior and therefore he admired strength. When Sunjata was 15, the king took him with him on campaign. Sunjata astonished the whole army with his strength and with his dash in the charge. In the course of a skirmish against the mountaineers, he hurled himself on the enemy with such vehemence that the king feared for his life. But Mansa Tankara admired bravery too much to stop the son of Sogolan. He followed him closely to protect him and he saw with rapture how the youth sowed panic among the enemy. He had remarkable presence of mind, struck right and left, and opened up for himself a glorious path. He eclipsed all the young princes and was the friend of the whole army. Sunjata was loved by most, and those who didn't love him feared him. He was made viceroy of Mima and ruled in the king's absence, unquote. Before we go too much further, I just want to pause and go back to Jele Mamadou Kayat who has this epic passed down to him over hundreds of years, and he has something to say about Mali's oral history. He says, quote, Other peoples use writing to record the past, but this invention has killed the faculty of memory among them. They do not feel the past anymore, for writing lacks the warmth of the human voice. With them, everybody thinks he knows, whereas learning should be a secret. The prophets did not write, and their words have been all the more vivid as a result. What paltry learning is it that which is congealed to dumb books? Get your mind around that. 
I, Jelly Mamadou Koyat, am the result of a long tradition. For generations, we have passed on the history of kings from father to son. The narrative was passed on to me without alteration, and I deliver it without alteration. For I received it free from all untruth, unquote. That hurt my soul when he called. Books dumb. I love books. But I just want to keep weaving in that story because it's so important to the narrative as this living, breathing thing, this oral tradition. So as Sunjata is preparing to assert his claim to the kingdom of his forefathers, we can now start setting up this clash of titans because he has to contend with Sumaru, the king of kings. Sumaru is this wizard and he's like something out of a nightmare. The story of this evil villain Sumaru was like a horror movie you watch with the lights on. Imagine, if you will, a towering seven-story citadel that stands as Sumaru's palace. The very walls are draped in human skin, a grisly tapestry of his conquests. Whispers circulate that this labyrinth fortress houses secret chambers, each one dedicated to dark sorcery. And in the most clandestine room, a macabre gallery unfolds, the severed heads of vanquished kings displayed on pikes as grim trophies. Sumaru isn't just a ruler, he's a reign of terror incarnate. His magic, formidable and arcane, imbues him with a sense of invincibility, making whole cities tremble at the mere mention of his name. His reign produced nothing but bloodshed and terrorism. Sunjata also learns during this exile about this evil sorcerer, King Sumaro Kante, who is slowly forcing the cities of Mali and beyond under his control through cruelty. So Nyani falls to the Sorcerer King. A search party is sent to Ghana to find Sunjata and ask him to claim his birthright. Around the same time, Dunkaran Tuman, king of Mali, and Sunjata's half-brother tries to wage war on Sumaru. He is devastatedly defeated. Now Sumaru is the king of Mali. The stage is set then. The players are in position then. This grim turn of events catalyzes what is to become the final climactic chapter of our epic story. Though his choice to return to Mali and battle the sorcerer king upsets Musa Tunkara, Sunjata is given half of Tunkara's army. He has to go reclaim his throne and go against the man who has rained death and destruction on his motherland, his homeland, and his soil in Mali. People all around him are calling on him, encouraging him to go home as people need him. The story goes this way, describing how they ask him to return. Quote, Magan Sunjata, I salute you, king of Mali. The throne of your fathers awaits you. Whatever rank you may hold here, leave all these honors and come and deliver your fatherland. The brave await you. Come and restore rightful authority to Mali. Weeping mothers pray only in your name. The assembled kings await you, for your name alone inspires confidence in them. Son of Sogolan, your hour has come. You are the giant who will crush the giant, Sumaru. After these words, a profound silence reigned over the room. Very well, he said. It is no longer time for words. I'm going to ask the kings leave and we will return immediately. Manding Bori, take charge of the envoys from Mali. Sunjata got up and all the envoys stood up. He was already king. At the age of 18, he had the stateliness of the lion and the strength of the buffalo. His voice carried authority. His eyes were live coals. His arm was iron. He was the husband of power. Musa Tunkara, king of Mima, gave Sunjata half his army. The most valiant came forward of their own free will to follow Sunjata in the great adventure. The cavalry of Mima, which he had fashioned himself, formed his iron squadron. Unquote. 
As Sunjata crisscrosses the West African landscape, he revisits the cities and lands that had once offered him sanctuary during his exile. But this time, he comes not as a refugee, but as a liberator. Imagine the stirring scenes as he arrives in each city as charisma pulling leaders, warriors, and volunteers into his orbit. We're talking about a burgeoning army, a gathering of forces, not merely to contest, but to overthrow a reign of terror. Now, here's where I really want you to lean in because the forthcoming battles are narrated in the epic with such minute detail and tangible urgency that they feel like they've been lifted straight out of a meticulously researched military history book or a blockbuster war film. It's not just a sketch. The griot paints a vivid tableau of military ingenuity. He elaborates on Sunjata's phalanxes, the cavalry units, the battalions of archers, even the distribution of siege weapons. So Sunjata leads his ever-growing motley yet united army towards Samaru's stronghold. But as if to deny him even the road to battle, Samaru dispatches a detachment led by his own son, Soso Bala. The task? To intercept and halt Sunjata's advance. Now envision a grand standoff, the kind where both armies are arrayed across a sprawling battlefield, both commanders eyeing the horizon, assessing their perspective might, strategizing about terrain, wind, and the psychology of their troops. Let me take you into the thick of it based on the Griot's account. As Sunjata's vanguard makes contact with Soso Bala's forces, a chaotic yet oddly harmonious ballet of warfare unfolds. The clash of metal, the cacophony of war cries, and the desperate yells of commanders fill the air. Yet amidst this chaos, Sunjata's strategy shines like a beacon guiding his army through the fog of war. Quote, all of the war chiefs thought it best to fight in the morning, but Sunjata was immovable. So the orders were given and the war drums began to beat. On his proud horse, Sunjata turned to right and left in front of his troops. He entrusted the rear guard, composed of part of the Wagadu cavalry, to his younger brother, Manding Bori. Having drawn his sword, Sunjata led the charge, shouting his war cry. The Sosos were surprised by the sudden attack, for they all thought that the battle would be joined the next day. The lightning that flashes across the sky is slower, the thunderbolts less frightening, and floodwaters less surprising than Sunjata swooping down on Sosobala and his smiths. In a trice, Sunjata was in the middle of the Sosos like a lion in the sheepfold. The Sosos, trampled under the hooves of his fiery charger, cried out. The horsemen of Mima wrought a frightful slaughter, and the long lances pierced the flesh like a knife sunk into pawpaw. Charging ever forward, Sunjata looked for Soso Bala. He caught sight of him and bounded towards the son of Somaru. His sword held aloft. His arm came sweeping down, but at that moment, a Soso warrior came between Jada and Soso Bala and was sliced like a calabash. Soso Bala did not wait and disappeared from amidst his smiths. Before the sun disappeared behind the mountains, there were only Jada and his men left in the valley, unquote. Sunjata has won his first battle. Now, finally, his armies come up against those of Sumaru. Though Sunjata is successful in his battles, he cannot harm the sorcerer king because the latter has magical protections. The story goes that Sunjata throws his iron-tipped spear and it bounces off the chest of Sumaru like it had hit a rock. We're told that Sumaru catches one of Sunjata's arrows mid-flight then magically disappears off the battlefield. Sunjata is bewildered. He wonders how he can defeat such a man. A sorcerer himself, he turns to magic for help, and through sacrifice, he is able to craft a magical arrow. 
At this point, Sunjata's Grio, Balafasike, had escaped with Sunjata's half-sister to reunite with him. And now Sunjata had the singer who would perpetuate his memory by his words. We're told that Sunjata pitches camp in the valley of the Niger River, preparing for his final showdown. Now, this is going to be the final battle, yet there never was a declaration of war. And this was a custom in West Africa. So here we see this exchange between Sunjata and Sumaro, their very first exchange of words. And it's fascinating and full of bravado, almost like a hip hop rap battle. The epic says, quote, stop, young man. Henceforth, I am the king of Mali. If you want peace, return to where you came from, said Sumaro. I'm coming back, Sumaro, to recapture my kingdom said Sunjata. If you want peace, you will make amends to my allies and return to Soso where you are king. Samaro. I am king of Mali by force of arms. My rights have been established by conquests. Sunjata. Then I will take Mali from you by force of arms and chase you from my kingdom. Samaro. Know then that I am the wild yam of the rocks. Nothing will make me leave Mali. Sunjata. Know also that I have in my camp seven master smiths who will shatter the rocks. Then, Yam, I will eat you. Sumaro. I am the poisonous mushroom that makes the fearless vomit. Sunjata. As for me, I am the ravenous cock. The poison does not matter to me. Sumaro. Behave yourself, little boy, or you will burn your foot, for I am the red-hot cinder. I am the mighty silk cotton tree that looks high on tops of other trees. Sunjata. I am the strangling creeper that climbs to the top of the forest giant. Sumaro comes back and says, enough of this argument. You shall not have Mali. Know that there is not room for two kings on the same skin. Sunjata says, you will let me have your place. Unquote. So this is the final fight. I would say odds are with Sunjata at this point. He's amassed a formidable army. Their morale is high. He's the people's champ. He has destiny working for him. Then there's Ballet Fasike, Sunjata's griot, and he is the ultimate morale booster and hype man. The night before the showdown, he gives a riling speech, and Fasike says this, quote, Now I address myself to you, Magan Sunjata. I speak to you, King of Mali. You, Magan, you are Mali. It has had a long and difficult childhood like you. You are the outgrowth of Mali, just like the silk cotton tree is the growth of the earth, born of deep and mighty roots. To face the tempest, the tree must have long roots and gnarled branches. But we have to teach our sons about you. By what distinguished actions will our sons be brought to regret not having lived in the time of Sunjata? Griots are men of the spoken word, and by the spoken word we give life to the gestures of kings. But words are nothing. Power lies in deeds. Be a man of action. Do not answer me anymore with your mouth. But tomorrow on the plain of Krina, show me what you would have me recount to coming generations. Unquote. And then the jelly Mamadou Kayat relates this to us. With his powerful voice, Sunjata cried his war cry. The order was repeated from tribe to tribe and the army started off. Sumaro stood on the right with his cavalry. Jada and his cavalry charged with the great dash, but were stopped by the horsemen of Dagon and a struggle to the death began. The archers of Wagadu stretched out their lines toward the hills and the battle spread over the entire plain. While an unrelenting sun climbed the sky, the horses of Mima were extremely agile and they reared forward with their forehooves raising and swooped down on the horsemen of Dagon. Presently, the men of Dagon gave ground and fell back toward the rear. The enemy center was broken, unquote. 
the battle goes on more and Sunjata nicks Sumaro with the magical arrow and the sorcerer king loses his power. Sumaro retreats and escapes. Sunjata pursues Sumaro for several days, finally trapping him in a cave with nowhere to go. He is one. The prophecy was fulfilled that day and destiny ran its full course that day. And the Lion King was crowned that day. Sunjata returns to Niani and founds the Mali Empire, splitting it up to show respect for all the rulers who promised to serve him. Jelly Mamadou Kuyat ends the epic by praising Sunjata and saying his rule was the golden age of Mali. Saying, quote, Magan Sunjata was unique in his own time. No one equaled him, and after him, no one had the ambition to surpass him. He left his mark on Mali for all time, and his taboos still guide men in their conduct. Mali is eternal. To convince yourself of what I have said, go to Mali. At Tigan, you will find the forest dear to Sunjata. Go to Kikaroni, near Neosola, and you will see a tree which commemorates Sunjata's passing through these parts. Men of today, how small are you beside your ancestors? And small in mind, too, for you have trouble grasping the meaning of my words. Sunjata rests near Niani, but his spirit lives on, and today the Kita still come and bow before the stone under which lies the father of Mali. Unquote. What is the legacy of Sunjata and the Mali Empire? I think first we have to pay homage to the politics of Sunjata's empire when he had conquered and ascended the throne. We are told he was a just ruler and he gathered all the kings and created the Korakan Fogan. This Mali constitution of human rights, as far as we know, it's one of the oldest constitutions. So when we discuss the world history of political thought, it would be a travesty not to mention this amongst those great traditions and constitutions that affirm the rights of poor communities and citizens. For instance, this constitution affirms a right to life. There is an edict that says all in the community are responsible for educating the children, not just their parents. The legacy of Sunjata lives on through the art and the music and the culture, the religion and myths and legends and the proverbs and the remnants of great mosques and other buildings. And I hope this story uplifts and highlights epics and oral narratives as windows to the past. I hope it highlights the rich history and heritage of West Africa. I hope this garners a respect for the connection to the oral tradition that we say no one civilization has a monopoly on history just because they had a written alphabet. And as we end this, I want you to remember the words of Jele Mamadou Koyat. You must believe this fantastic story and the glory of Sunjata, the founder of the Mali Empire. For royal griots do not know what lying is. Thank you, thank you, thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate you so much. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Apple and Spotify and make sure you pause right now and write a review, write a review of the show that helps so much. It helps new people to discover the show and join our community of people who love overlooked history. So go to patreon.com backslash the humanity archive. You can see the benefits over there that you'll get when you sign up and you keep the show going. Thank you all for listening again. I love you all and I'll see you next time.